want you to listen now to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, beginning with verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum, by the sea, in the, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, by the road, by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. For those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And as he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. This is the word of God for the people of God. Be be seated. Let's uh, pray together. Come, Holy Spirit, come in these next moments and speak to our hearts. Uh, Move us to a place of deeper surrender to Jesus. Jesus, you are Lord, you are Master, you are the Savior. We are your disciples, your followers. So speak to us and and help us to perhaps recommit ourselves to being more faithful, uh, more obedient as your disciples. And if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, that has never said yes to your invitation to come and follow me, maybe today, Lord, will be the day. And I pray this in your name. Amen. As the choir was sitting here, uh, or standing here singing, and I was just sitting here listening to them this morning, uh, the Holy Spirit brought, brought to mind something that uh, made me smile and still amazes me. But when I started here uh, 12 and a half years ago, uh, Yvonne Hale was our church secretary, and she retired a couple of years ago. And, and uh, Yvonne had a, a, a big personality, didn't she? Uh, and a very loud voice. And, uh, and yet she had no experience as a secretary when she was hired uh, by my predecessor. And she made that very plain to me immediately when I arrived. I'm not really a secretary. I mean, I am a secretary, but I've never been a secretary before. And she'd only been on the job for a few months when I came, as I recall. But uh, anyway, she was fond of telling me things that she could not do. And one of them was that she could never pray out loud in public. So don't ask me to pray for someone. Don't call on me to pray. If somebody comes into the office, they need prayer, don't come to me. But uh, I wouldn't accept that. I felt like Yvonne, given her maturity as, as a Christian, as long as she's walked with the Lord, I thought she could pray with somebody. And 
So I told her, I said, there may come a time when, you, when I won't be available. And if somebody needs prayer, you're going to have to pray for them. And it was terrifying to her, the very thought of that. But that day did come. And Yvonne learned to pray with people. Now, she also told me that she could never counsel people. She could never give anybody spiritual direction. If they came into the office, they need to see a pastor, and I wasn't available, what will I do? And I said, well, just lean on Jesus. <laughs> the Lord will help you. So not only did she learn to pray with people, she became a very good listener and counselor to people, just as a layperson. When they would come into the office, and Pastor Greg or Pastor Andrew or... Uh, Larry Hall were not available to speak with that individual. And there were two or three relationships for Yvonne, and some of you sitting here may have had that kind of relationship with her, found that she, could be, she was very uh, wise and discerning at times and could really help them and pray for them when they were struggling. It's interesting to me as I look at the Gospels how often we see God choosing unlikely persons, perhaps in our view, unfit persons to do his work. And this is, this is just the way it is, both Old and New Testament. And when you look at the 12 disciples, the men that Jesus chose to follow him, you don't see any religious leaders counted among them. There were no government officials. Uh, there were no people of status, people of wealth. Uh, he chose common folk who were severely lacking until Jesus came into their lives. The disciples didn't have very much spiritual insight or maturity. That's obvious. They lacked humility. They often were arrogant, self-assured, and at times got in squabbles with one another. They lacked trust in God. Jesus repeatedly asked them, where is your faith? They lacked commitment. It was hard for them to fully surrender to God's purposes. Peter being the most impetuous and the most difficult one in the bunch. They lacked power. Um, they relied only upon God's enabling over time uh, to help him face whatever the situation was. And so after three years of teaching and exampling and witnessing the presence and power of God in their lives, these ordinary men became extraordinary extraordinary followers of Jesus. This question has been on my heart all week. Does God still call ordinary people? I know the answer to that because I'm one of them. Uh, when I was called to ministry, I was surprised. It was like, you're talking to me? You want me to go into full-time ministry? That was not the plan. I was in college majoring in business and computer science. I did not have ministry on my radar at all. And then it began to unfold a calling to full-time ministry. That was 40 years ago. This morning's reading occurs just after Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist, has been led into the wilderness, been tempted uh, by Satan, proven ready for his inauguration the initiation of his ministry. And so in Matthew 4, Jesus withdraws from Judea 
and makes his way north to Galilee. And he stops off in Nazareth, presumably to see his mama. And when he gets to the Sea of Galilee, he chooses Capernaum as his home base. Now, the Sea of Galilee is mentioned often in the Bible. Um, there's some slides up there, uh, Danny, that you can show. Uh, it's a freshwater lake that uh, empties into the Jordan River, uh, flows down into the Dead Sea. Uh, its origin is found on Mount Hermon. And these smaller streams eventually run into the Jordan. The Jordan dumps into the uh, Sea of Galilee and then flows out to the Dead Sea where the water stops. There's no outlet to the Dead Sea. That's why it's called dead. It's very salty. Uh, the density of the water is, is, is so, uh, so great that you can actually float in it uh, on your back and, and will not sink. Some of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. They obviously made their living there. They lived nearby. Uh, Kinneret is the name that is given to the sea uh, in the Hebrew, and it means harp. And if you'll see this, this is a, a satellite view of the Sea of Galilee, and it does look like a harp. And if you go up on the mountains, the Golan Heights, and look down on the Sea of Galilee... Uh, it's really obvious. It's easy to make out this shape, shape. From any point, any point on the shore around the Sea of Galilee, you can see all the rest of it on a clear day. So it's not a really big, big lake, but it is very much a deep lake. If you continue on there, Danny, here's a map that shows you where it's positioned. It's in the far north. Uh, the Dead Sea is in the south. Judea is to the west of the Dead Sea. Samaria, uh, the land of the untouchables, is in between Galilee and Judea. And then if you'll go to the next one, uh, this is just a view of, of the Sea of Galilee today. Um, this was taken in 2018 when we had a group from our church on pilgrimage uh, to Israel. Uh, the day that we went out, it was very uh, cloudy, very windy, and even uh, rainy. There was rain that came during that day. This is in 2016 when Mike Tevis uh, sang uh, a very soulful version of Stand By Me. Uh, when storms are raging all around me, Lord, stand by me. And this is some of our group along with others that are listening to him. Uh, we're on a boat out in the middle of the sea. This was that same 2016 trip. And this last slide, everybody knows Tanya and Brent. Uh, this was in 2018. You had a great time, didn't you, Tanya? It was an awesome experience. But the Sea of Galilee is important in the scripture because... Again, it was where most of Jesus' ministry took place. Most of his miracles happened on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum was his home base. Just real quickly, show you a couple of other pictures that are amazing. Uh, the first one, th these are the actual ruins of the town, a village of about 1,000 persons during the first century. Jesus would have walked these streets. He would have been in these homes. Simon Peter's house was there. But this is the excavated site of some of these ancient ruins. And this second slide shows you a 4th century synagogue that is built on the ruins of the very synagogue that Jesus would have worshipped in and would have taught in in Capernaum. Now, Jesus chose this place, Capernaum, for uh, a reason that's not 
readily apparent. You know, he was born in Bethlehem, uh, a rather obscure place, figured prominently in the prophecies concerning Messiah, but nobody went to Bethlehem to vacation. It was probably 10 miles or so outside of Jerusalem. Um, Jesus was raised in Nazareth at the time of his birth. Maybe a hundred people lived in Nazareth. Uh, they believed that it was probably a thousand people uh, at the most by the time he was grown, but it could have been much less than that. But there again, uh, Nazareth was not famous for anything in Jesus' day. And he, he chooses a small fishing village on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee to be his home base because God seems to always favor, seems to always work best through people and places that are not strong, not notable, not wealthy, not particularly powerful in their own. God chooses the ordinary, the humble, the common throughout the scriptures. And this is certainly the case here in Matthew 4, as Jesus appears for the first time and begins his public ministry. Most of Jesus' time was not spent with power brokers. I'm convinced if he were on the earth today, if he was doing ministry in the United States, he would not go to New York City, Los Angeles, or Washington, D.C. He would be in eastern Kentucky, uh, for sure. He would be mingling with common people, people who may not necessarily have the advantages that everyone else had. So Jesus leaves behind the, the powerful in Jerusalem, uh, no doubt partly because it was dangerous for him to stay there, given his message. And he avoids Tiberias, which is a city that still exists today uh, on the um, western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes the Sea of Galilee is called in the Scripture the Sea of Tiberias or Tiberias Lake because that's where the Romans uh, had their center of power in Galilee and that's where Herod Antipas uh, reigned and ruled from who was responsible for the death of John the Baptist. Jesus' message for the powerful as well as for the weak for the well as well as the sick, for those that life was good, they had everything they needed, as well as the poorest of the poor, his message was the same as John the Baptist's message. Consistently, Jesus called people to repent. Now, repent is kind of a religious word today, but but actually is a very basic, ordinary word then. It was a word that simply means to change directions, to turn from something to something. And in Scripture, it's always um, an act, a decision to turn away from sin, selfishness, self-reliance unto God, who is all things to us, to Jesus, who is Savior to us, to the Holy Spirit, who is God's power in our lives for us. In a Newsweek article that was published 10 years ago, Tiger Woods uh, did something that very few celebrities do unless they have to. Uh, you remember how he is, his private life and his personal life just disintegrated. Uh, he, he did some very bad things. And it came out and his wife left him, took the children, 
and one of the world's greatest athletes suddenly lost his game. (laughs) He was no longer playing the golf he once played as well as his family because of his foolishness and his pride. Um, Ultimately, we know this, but as human beings we often deny it and foolishly stumble into it, but sin affects our relationship with God, but not only ourselves and our relationship to God. It has a profound effect on the people that we love most in life. And this is what's found in Tiger's words. Listen to what he says. Last November, this was 10 years ago, everything I thought I knew about myself changed abruptly, and what others perceived about me shifted too. My life was out of balance, and my priorities were out of order. I made terrible choices and repeated mistakes. I hurt people whom I love the most. And even beyond accepting the consequences and responsibility, there is the ongoing struggle to learn from my failings. At first, I didn't want to look inward. Frankly, I was scared of what I would find, what I had become. Golf is a self-centered game in good ways and bad ways. So much depends on one's own abilities. I mean, it's not a team sport generally. But for me, he says, that self-reliance made me think I could tackle the world by myself. It made me think that if I was successful at golf, then I was invincible. Now I know that no matter how tough or strong we are, we need to rely on others. Now that's, that's half of repentance. Because there's no indication that that as he turned away from this self-destructive behavior he turned his life over to God. But we understand, as Christians, those of us that have read the Word, understand the Bible, that, um, that there are two parts to re- repentance. There's a turning away and a turning to. And Jesus makes it, makes it plain that if we want to inherit, receive the kingdom of heaven into our lives, no matter what our status or who we are, how rich or poor we are, No matter even our race, whether we're Jew or Gentile, I mean, he was in the midst of quite a few Gentiles in Galilee, that that we must come to God on his terms, not ours. And that fundamentally involves an act of repentance, of surrender to God. Um, When we visited uh, the Vatican 10 years ago, Marilyn and Jesse were on that trip, uh, the Shalvers, are they here this morning? Uh, yeah, they were with us on that trip. We had a great time. It's a Journeys of Paul Cruz. And um, when, you, when you are standing outside of the Vatican, it's, it's pretty awesome uh, to look up at St. Peter's Basilica. And on the precipice of this great church, hundreds and hundreds of years old, there are these colossal statues of Jesus and the Apostles. Now, just to get the scale in your mind here, go back to that last one there, Danny. See those little specks at the bottom there? Those are people. Uh, The doors, I don't know if you remember this, the doors to St. Peter's are like three stories, four stories high. They're massive, they're unbelievably large. But you see these tiny little people like ants at the bottom, and then uh, up near the roof line of, of the basilica, are all of these 20-foot statues that are 500 years old. 
And if you look at them a bit more closely, you see that, that these depictions of the apostles, Jesus is in the center there, John the Baptist is uh, to his right, and then there's a couple of the apostles. Uh, Peter, because of his special status in Roman Catholicism, is at a different location, but he is still, they're all there still together. But they look like superheroes. I mean, they're muscular, they're fit, uh, they, they've got symbols uh, of spiritual weaponry in their hands, under their arm, etc. They look invincible. And this is very contrary to who they really were. They, they were not statuesque men. And they were certainly not 20 feet tall. The average height of a man in the first century was five and a half feet. And, and if you study the lives of these men, and even the women that accompanied Jesus, they were ordinary people. They were not soldiers. They were not superheroes. Uh, they were just like us. And, and God calls fishermen, who according to Cicero, um, he calls fishermen who were at the bottom of the scale, of the social standing scale, landowners who had productive land and servants and slaves were at the top, but fishermen were at the bottom. They, they um, smelled just like shepherds. They smelled like fish. They were dirty. They worked hard. Often they worked through the night. I was recalling this morning going fishing one time. One time I can remember going fishing. And I judged the whole experience by that one night when my uncle and my dad took me jug fishing. We were out on the lake all night long. It was dark. It was cold. I was miserable. I was curled up like a baby in a fetal position in the bottom of the boat trying to sleep. I hated it. Furthermore, my uncle, whenever I was around him, he had always, he was coming back from the lake, had always been fishing, and he just smelled bad. Uh, you know, fishermen have a certain cologne they wear. And, and Ray Rucker was one of those people. So God reaches out through Jesus to begin this movement, to usher in the kingdom of heaven. And what happens? He starts with Peter and Andrew who are out fishing on the lake and says, come follow me. Now they may have known him prior to this moment. We don't know for sure. They may have been acquainted with him in some way. Uh, it's reasonable when you look at how small the area is that they would have seen him, maybe heard about him. But when, when he said, follow me, the scripture says they dropped their nets. They left behind the only vocation, the only life they knew as fishermen to follow him. And James and John, two brothers that Mark's gospel calls sons of thunder, they left their daddy in the boat. I mean, this was a family business. People had children. They, in ancient times, they didn't have, remember, they didn't have social security or pensions. So you had children to take care of you when you got old. How many of you have a child taking care of you in your old age? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, it's not, it doesn't happen much, does it? <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but here's Zebedee 
with these sons of thunder who probably were loud, outspoken, had a chip on their shoulder, regular to go to, ready to go to blows with anybody, any adversary that opposed them. Here they suddenly abandon their daddy. And I can just see him saying, hey, where are you boys going? Come back here, we've still got work to do. But no, there was a new allegiance that had come to their lives. They didn't understand anything that was ahead. They, they could not have known that they would have to go through great trial and, and, and suffering and difficulty. They would be persecuted. They would all eventually be martyred. They would die for the faith. These men walked away from fishing in order to be fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. And I, I just think about how in my own life, how my call to ministry, um, and, and it evolved, it came over a period of, of many months, but how my call, call to ministry became a call to sacrifice. And I've not resented those sacrifices at all. Uh, I'm grateful to God that I've been... been uh, you know, largely obedient to him during these years, tried to be faithful to him uh, and fruitful in my ministry. But there were, not everybody understood it. Uh, family, some of my own family had serious doubts about whether I should be going into ministry. A co-worker at the job I had at the time said to me, when, when I told her about my decision, she said, what a waste. Like I was squandering my abilities, my talent, my passion on something that did not matter. But we know the rest of the story. These ordinary fishermen had no idea where Jesus was taking them, but they followed him. And all but one of them, one of them stuck with him, even unto death. Let me just say something that we forget sometimes. You don't volunteer to be a follower of Jesus. Um, I've done it way too many times. We talk about needing volunteers for things, right? And sometimes we have to twist arms. We have to cajole. We beg. We just won't leave you alone until somebody says, yes, I'll help cook dinner on Wednesday night. Or I'll clean up the dirty dishes. Or I'll help with the nursery. Or I'll help with kids on worship. We could go on and on. Finally, people, we, just, we stay after you long enough. You just, some of you just volunteer finally. I surrender. And, and the, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that that's not what discipleship is about. It's not volunteering to giving God a little bit of your time. It is the surrender of your life to his purpose, to his mandate, to his plan. And even though you may not know what that's going to look like in the days and years ahead, you say, as we sang a few moments ago, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Now, if, if that's the orientation of your heart, then I believe you are a disciple uh, you understand that you didn't choose Jesus. He first chose you, right? You know that. The scripture says that. Once we say yes to him, though, he gives us this wonderful 
new reality, a place at the table with him, the promise of eternal life. Peter and Andrew, James and John were called to a new way of thinking and a new way of living. Jesus says to them, follow me, I will make you fish for people. And in the days and years ahead, they learned what that was all about. I wonder if, if you need to say yes again to Jesus. To hear him speak the invitation, follow me into your life, into your heart again. Now I'm going to close with this scripture as our musicians come to lead us in our closing song. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is writing... Um, to a very divisive, troubled congregation. Corinth had a hard time, let me tell you. And listen to what Paul says to them early in his letter. He says, consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Hear this as though God is speaking this to you, though Paul has written this to you. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. Now, Lord, we thank you for your um, reckless love, your pursuit of us. From the moment we are conceived in our mama's womb, you are there with us, you are for us, you are beginning to woo us through the circumstances of, of, of our lives. From an early age until we're old and gray and the time of our death, you're always calling forth in us a more surrendered life. And we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that you know our names, that you haven't lost sight of us, that there's not a moment, a breath of our days that you do not feel, that you do not sense and understand. We cannot fully comprehend that, how you can be such an awesome, great, and powerful God, but we want to. And we certainly want to praise you as a result of that. So thank you, Lord. Come now and help us to enter into this song. It's new, but help us to enter into it and to sing it from our hearts. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.